This is The New Right, a podcast for the lost arts, reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. This is Dan Baltic, and um, we, again, do not have Matt with us this week. He is on uh, clandestine activities uh, somewhere in the desert in California. I can't say more about it, but uh, frankly, you probably don't want to know. So, um, yeah, but I, I am very pleased to have the guest we have today, uh, Phoebe, Phoebe Neer, who is the organizer of the uh, much acclaimed Devere Ball. <laughs> and she, uh, the Devere Ball, for those of you who don't know, it's probably very few of us at this point, it's uh, rooted in uh, the quest to determine the uh, true authorship of William Shakespeare's works. So um, Edward de Vere, it, uh, it is postulated by some, including Phoebe, that he is the true author of Shakespeare's works. And this was a ball that took place in New York City that uh, drew the, uh, the creme de la creme of the city <laughs> to the, uh, the festivities. And um, we'll talk more about that. But Phoebe also uh, is not just a party organizer. She is a, an acclaimed playwright. And uh, her play, Eco Village, debuted, I believe, at St. Clement's Theater originally. Yeah. And um, in 2019, right before mm -hmm. COVID, more or less. And uh, recently, she adapted that play into a, uh, a film, which uh, is very good. I've watched it and... Uh, many all of you should as well it's uh i'm sure it had its premiere in williamsburg recently and i'm sure it will go on to uh be distributed and um yeah you should check it out and in addition uh she uh she has been trying her hand at fiction writing recently to uh great success and she was published by expat and uh it's a, a story a short story i guess maybe like auto fiction and um, it's really very, very good. I mean, I read a lot of writing for, you know, what I do for the pod. And uh, it's one of the more entertaining things I've, I've come across. And, you know, frankly, we don't have a lot of women in the pod, I must say, Phoebe. So, like, I, I remember I was reading uh, one of uh, some, some, some work to my girlfriend. And she was like, what is this weird stuff? And but she was like reading over my shoulder, reading your story. And she was like, this is, uh, she's laughing. She's like, this is great. I, this is good writing. Wow. So. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's, that's really high praise. I, I appreciate your kind words. I appreciate your girlfriend's endorsement. Uh, 
and and like I said, a mutual admiration society. I um I I love what you're doing, and um um your novel uh is terrific. And um, well, thank you, Phoebe. Yeah, yeah. No, so it's it's great to have you here, and uh, you know, thank you for coming on. And I mean, what what strikes me the most about you is um. I mean, you are like a true Renaissance woman. <laughs> like I, you know, like initially I came to know you. I'm not sure we met at the first Devere Ball that you threw in over the summer in August, but that's kind of like when I came to know of you. And so kind of like moving into like, what is the Devere Ball for those of us who don't know? Like I was originally someone who didn't know. And right. so I, I was like, you know, on the timeline and someone is like advertising, there's some ball that, Curtis Yarvin and Jack will be at in New York City. And I'm like, yeah, I'll go to that. That sounds pretty cool. And uh, yeah, so I, I bought a ticket. And I think that that is probably and so so this is something that like you well, why don't you give me the like you you explain this, I think, on your pod with uh with Nick and Joe and yeah. the kind of genesis of it. But yeah. uh to you know, um to recount it again. Uh, kind of um, for people who don't know you, this was designed to promote the uh, your not just your theory, but many people's <laughs> theory that Edward De Vere is uh, is Shakespeare, and so or wrote the works of Shakespeare. And so, how did it come from? Like, like take me from the very beginning. You totally. like found out about Edward De Vere. You found out about this thing. And so when, how did that turn into a party in New York City that drew Curtis Yarvin and Jack of the Perfume Nationalist? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been um, obsessed with uh, Edward de Vere and the Oxfordian theory of Shakespeare authorship um, for a couple of years now. It was kind of like my big pandemic obsession rabbit hole. And I just um, got sucked in and, and just became addicted. And um was just like talking about it all the time and reading about it all the time wanted to and wanted to talk to more people about it and wanted to share it and I think for me it's twofold one is like it's brought me so much joy just this like electricity that I feel like kind of uh discovering uh more and more about like I think the most interesting exciting personality like greatest artistic genius who's ever lived and I think in like my own personal life like I find it really inspiring and the the quest to uh you know kind of gain this sort of intimacy with him and understand how he operated and what his life was about and and his creative pro process is is rewarding in and of itself but i also uh i'm really passionate about supporting the work of these like incredible maverick scholars who are uh, working tirelessly for decades, doing extraordinary work, um, you know, outside of the kind of cushy, uh, you know, uh, academic institutions, which from which they've been exiled um, forever, basically. Um, and so yeah. I think, you know, I wanted to share Oxfordism with people because I love it. And I wanted to promote the work of the scholars that inspire me, who I, I think are heroes, like Indiana Jones level. I mean, I know it's like a fictional character, but like that's how yeah, I feel yeah. about these like incredible badass swashbuckling, like real heroes, like Maimonides level scholarship that's happening like during our lifetimes. You know, it's like I feel like yeah. 
the way that like aeronautics was having like a big hey- heyday in like the mid, you know, 20th century. Like that's what's going on right now in the humanities with the greatest literary scoop ever, you know, the, the biggest breakthrough, I think, in the humanities of all time. And yet, you know, everyone's sleeping on it. And so basically that was my motivation for wanting to spread the word. And so then I was um, hanging yeah. out with uh, some friends of mine and I was like, I want to like meme Oxfordianism into being a thing. I want more people talking about it. Like, how do I, how do I build this like sleeper cell community in New York? Like, how do I get more people talking about it? And like, that's another thing that I've always thought about, which is like, well, I can, well, I, yeah. All right. Sorry. There's a lot of different tangents, no, but no, basically, it, like, you know, people, people are saying like, people will ask, oh, like, why is Oxfordianism happening now? And I don't have a good reason. I don't have a good answer for that because for me, it's baffling that Oxfordianism- because of Phoebe. That's why. (laughs) Thank you. I guess no, literally, yeah, like literally, like one like annoying like theater kid had a dream, but like I think that um no, like literally, like when I talked about with Matt about having you on, I'm just like the Devere girl. He's like, oh, the Devere girl. Okay, honored, honored to be the Devere girl. I'm sure I'm the first of you know many many Devere girls, and frankly, there are many badass Devere girls already who like who are just incredible and and are doing a lot more for the field than I am um you know I I think of myself as like you know that's why I I did the TikTok thing because I was like I'm not and I wish that I could be like one of these incredible scholars that are like you know putting connecting the dots and doing incredible primary source research but like I just I know who I am and I know who I'm not and I'm not that, but yeah. I can be like annoying on the internet and like throw like hipster parties and like start a TikTok channel and maybe try and like be kind of like an outreach voice, you know? Absolutely. I, I so I was like, let's, that's okay. You know, let's just so stop like, right here and plug the TikTok channel. What is it called? So people can look <laughs> it up. underscore Devere. So my goal with the TikTok channel was to really just, I, I read a horrifying thing, which was that for Zoomers, like 50% of them don't even use Google as a search engine. Not that that's such a great tragedy, but that they use um their primary search engine is like Instagram or TikTok. And so I downloaded the app TikTok was horrified Searched for <laughs> Edward Devere was horrified that there was no content whatsoever. And so I was like, okay, at least I can create a library on this app that can be, you know, serving people if they search for it. So I built that, that was kind of my project over the summer was I did like a video, like every day for a certain span of time and Highly I should get back to it, but I'm trying I, to, I looked at it and like, I've learned a lot about Shakespeare from these TikTok videos oh, uh, or Edward Devere, I, I suppose. And both Sick. really. Yeah. Look, you so, know, people talk about Mark Twain, people talk about Marilyn Monroe, you know, so like, these are, these are pseudonyms. So. Yeah. No, I mean, check it out. Phoebe's TikTok, you will uh, you will learn about Edward Devere. But go on, Phoebe. You're, yeah, if you're bored on like the toilet and you want to watch <laughs> an education Shakespeare video on TikTok, uh, I'm your girl. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so I'm trying to make more YouTube video content, like basic introductory level stuff, because I think there's so much amazing content that's really high level, but there's a lack of like kind of that first introductory step. So that's slow yeah. going. But anywho, um, back to the Devere ball. So basically I was like... Um, you know, well, that's what I always joke. I'm like, you know, talking to like a publicist, like you have a new client, his name, William Shakespeare. You know? <laughs> so like, that's kind of how I think about it. And I was like, um, my friend Nick uh, of the Beautiful Toilet podcast um, was like, well, they're friend of the pod, friend of the pod, really uh, uh, one for the ages of a very fascinating <laughs> figure who I, I really uh, care for. For um, sure. 
uh, he was like, well, there are all these like milady raves that are happening to popularize like this, like milady cryptocurrency thing. Why don't you do a Devere Shakespeare rave? And I was like, that's a stupid idea. What are you talking about? And then I was like, wait, wait, I just had a great idea. I'm going to throw a party. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, you know, so basically the thing about Oxfordianism, which is what it's called the intellectual movement, which is a disaster. I was like, this is like the SEO problem of all time, because even just doing my TikToks, no one even knows who the fuck Edward Devere is. Like at least like yeah. Francis Bacon as an alternative theory candidate, like they have a little bit more of a bridgehead because people at least know who he is. And then it's like, I'm trying to raise awareness about Oxfordianism. And then people are like, oh, like, is that about the university? And you're like, what? Or then you talk about the, like, I've had so, like heartbreaking conversations where I'm going on and on and laying out the cases for people. And then at the end, they're like, wow, this is fascinating. And they're like, what's the guy's name again? And so I was just like, oh God. And so I was like, I really feel like, you know, the, the fact that it's Oxfordianism is so alienating and confusing because American people and, and even British people, like no one really understands like British gentry as like a system. Like you wouldn't call people by their titles nowadays. Like, you you know, or you, like yeah. if I said, hey, did you see the Sussexes on Oprah? You'd be like, what? But I'm like, yeah. did you see Harry and Meghan? You know what I mean? Like people just want. Are they a, still Sussexes? I thought they were stripped. No. OK, know. so again, like case in point, I don't know and I don't care. You know okay. what I mean? So, so I'm just like, <laughs> I don't know anything about Oxford. I don't know, but I know who Edward DeVere is and I know that I want more people to care about him. And so I was like, I think okay. we need to make it not the, the, the branding around this. Like, I think Oxfordianism isn't sticky for people. Like it just is confusing. And it's like the same as the school. Yeah. Whereas if I called it the DeVere ball, people will maybe remember who Edward DeVere was. And so then I was like, I'm going to throw this thing called the DeVere ball. And okay, just, just to jump in quickly, it's called Oxfordianism, I think, because Edward de Vere was a lecturer or Oxford. resident of Oxford in some shape or form. Yeah, he was the 17th with... Earl of Oxford, okay. so people would call I, I guess, him, yeah. you would call people's, like, by their by their landed title or whatever, yeah. so you call him, like, Oxford, and then, like, you know, Robert Dudley, who was, like, the Queen's boy, Queen Elizabeth's boyfriend a lot, people call him Leicester, because he was, like, the Earl of Leicester, so it's, like, yeah. Okay, and it's so antiquated. the... And the, um, the other camp, the camp who believes Shakespeare was Shakespeare, they are the Stratfordians because that is where William Shakespeare was from, essentially. Sure, totally. Or I guess they would just say, like, we're normal. We're having a normal one. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess, like, we call them Stratfordians. I don't think and, they'd say Okay, think they don't the, call the, it. Stratfordian hegemony is so powerful that they don't even need to designate themselves as such. But that's what I'm trying to change. Yeah. So not to like jump into this too much, but the um, so it seems like the, you know, the division between Oxfordians and Stratfordians on some level, there's a sort of like belief uh, that the Oxfordians being Oxfordians are embracing a more aristocratic version of Shakespeare. And in fact, um, uh, the the person who kind of like argued the case for it at the De Beer Ball was Curtis Yarvin of Dark Elf fame, <laughs> yeah, who yeah, yeah. is uh, and you know a a noted uh, you know monarchist, but also a believer in um, the the legitimate role of the aristocracy. And I would say many on the right uh, believe that as as well, even the populist right. So. Um, Maybe you could speak a little bit to um, 
is is this a uh, an issue of class? The division yeah, between guess, you know, the... it's funny. It's like I feel like weirdly Curtis is an anomaly in how he came to the Oxfordian movement. Like I was at the Oxfordian conference in Ashland in September, and it's like a lot of the scholars are like literally like Jewish hippie professors in schools in Vermont and and uh, like um, fucking Washington State. And like leftists, like, you know, even historically, yeah. like Malcolm X is an anti-Stratfordian, like, you know, Helen Keller noted, you know, commie, you know, yeah, Mark yeah. Twain, no, like, absolutely. Yeah. Mark like, Twain I mean, I feel like... a book, Walt Whitman, you know, so I feel like it's like I feel like the, the look, it's like the classist thing is the first thing that they'll hit you with. And it's the last thing that they'll hit you with. You know what I mean? I don't think it's really valid as a criticism. I think it like I, certainly for myself, I have no um investment in the aristocracy <laughs> or anything i'm just like for me it's like what takes us closer to the beating heart of these works what makes more sense how yeah. do we get the most juice out of this you know like and you know it's very obvious to me um that you know it's just it's it's not about you know it's funny it's uh, i guess you know with curtis who i think did a beautiful job and and spoke really eloquently like he did yes he um but but he's not representative of how like why most people um embrace oxfordianism or get enthusiastic about it like you know his his uh axe to grind is his own yeah yeah i can't imagine he's uh a, the reason why people are coming to <laughs> uh, although like maybe the reason why people on like you know the, the people who came to the ball like you've you've pilled a lot of the the right the uh, dissident so. right on uh you know to the on the Vere, like to the extent like i think like the like the right and I, obviously we and we can get into this the reception of uh the ball on the right on the left but i mean like those on the right i think we we've all heard we all know the like and frankly like it seemed like i never thought of it before i never even had heard of it before this ball but I'm listening to it and I'm just like, yeah, that makes sense. So I like, think part I of why that. people don't even think about it is weirdly like how boring Stratfordianism is. Like, wouldn't you think that Shakespeare would be like a pretty interesting character? Wouldn't you think that like the guy who wrote like the most ex astonishing corpus in the history of like, you know, the language, like we're like, that's the thing is like, I remember being a kid in school and I like love like Romeo and Juliet when we read it in like seventh grade English or whatever. And then, you know, you have your little Folgers play. And then I remember flipping to the front and like, you know, what do we know about this guy? Oh, nothing. Literally nothing at all. Yeah. You know, nothing sticks in your head. There's nothing mnemonic or charismatic or interesting about it. Um, and it just sort of slides right out of your head. And so it's like you're not even curious to know more because there's nothing to even spark that interest. And that, so that's part of what I hope is that like I hope a, a renaissance or a resurgence of interest in Oxfordianism will make people realize why these works are so vital, why these works are so um, applicable today. And and um, yeah, I just hope it, it raises interest in general in Shakespeare because it's like it dulls it down. You know, I was saying this the yeah. other night, like Truth has a signature, like it has a smell. And I think the reason that we call bullshit bullshit is bullshit also has a smell, you know? And and I think that like what got me immediately hooked on like Oxfordianism, and I think everybody listening to your podcast right now has had this experience of like, you've encountered a piece of news media and you've read it and you're like, huh, this feels like 
total bullshit. Like, this is not true. You know what I mean? Like I'm reading something and it just doesn't feel like truth. And Oxfordianism to me is like, oh my God, this feels so, you know, it's just like, it just feels like real life in a way that's vivid in a way that I think that the, the Stratforty narrative, and maybe this is on purpose. Like I was talking the other day with, um, you know, about like, you know, the Bible, right? No, the Bible is basically unattributed as a work. And everyone has this personal relationship with the Bible. The Bible is the most popular, you know, vaunted, engaged yeah. with canonical work ever. And it doesn't have an author, quote unquote, or it's God or something. And so part of me was like, maybe I'm doing a disservice to the works of Shakespeare because they created this sort of like Ronald McDonald, like mascot clown paint icon (laughs) on purpose. You know what I mean? Like Ben Johnson, like I think there was partly it was like to escape political censorship was part of it. But like maybe there's some way in which having no associations or no baggage attached to the author of these works makes them more universal or makes them more accessible. And maybe I'm doing something bad, you know, maybe to actually cast the light on like, if you knew who wrote the Bible, would it make the Bible less? I mean, they serve different functions. Well, I mean, it was obviously like many people who wrote the Bible. Exactly. (laughs) But if you knew about their sex lives, would it change? You know, I mean, yeah. Amazing to me about the texture and the rhythm of Shakespeare's language that I feel like is weirdly echoed. I was like, this was a soup. This was a dumb thing, but I was reading it and I was, and I was like, you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of the Bible. And I was like, duh, of course, like obviously, you know, and Edward Devere, Roger Stripmatter, who's a uh, Oxfordian scholar, does all this incredible work showing how Edward Devere has this Geneva Bible that he annotates and highlights. And when wherever he annotated and highlighted things, those are the verses that end up in the plays. But like, yeah. maybe maybe worth pulling up. Like, I love there's this um a long passage in the book of Job that to me is it's like my favorite. And it just um it just sounds like Shakespeare. Like there's something in it that. Do you, do you want to get it and read it? Yeah. Can you give me a second? Yeah. Take your okay. time. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, no, maybe after this, after you read this, you can just give a brief case for like, I'm sure there are many people uh, who listen to my pod. I, I feel probably most have heard of the Devere ball they are like, oh my God, yeah, we still haven't talked about the Devere ball. <laughs> well, no, no, we'll, we'll talk about that, but also like, what is the case for Edward Devere? So after you read this Job thing, just like give like a, a, you know, if you're comfortable, a three minute version of like, why is this guy Shakespeare? Why should we believe this? Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let me see. Maybe I should focus on that right now instead of like randomly like searching the internet. All right, for- yeah, that's bad podcasting. <laughs> yeah. Just, <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, just yeah. give the Devere case. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Well, so here's the thing in terms of the, here, the, here's the truth. I think if it was super easy to give a three minute version of it, it would be common knowledge by now. So what I find is the easiest way to like kind of because you can lay out all of the evidence and it's this like death by a thousand paper cuts and it's like hugely like massive, massive amounts of it. But I think the quickest way to give people a vision is like kind of through metaphor. So what I say is, uh, you know imagine or why it matters. So imagine that, you know, it's 1998, you're sitting at home on the couch and you're watching SNL on TV and a actor comes in and he says, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And then another actor comes in and it's a big dude, fat guy wearing a blue dress. And he's, and, and then the audience starts laughing. So, okay. So that's the scene and you're watching this on your sofa. So imagine like 400 years in the future, a historian of the future is watching a video of this SNL skit and they're trying to write a book about what it means, why it was funny, 
but they've never heard of the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And instead of 1998, they think that it dates back to 1978. So that's sort of the state of scholarship on Shakespeare today, which is to say like pretty much like garbage in terms of people like the historiosity of it like it's just misdated it's miscontextualized so going back to this uh, like analogy so okay so week after week back to 1998 you're watching everyone in the nation is gripped there every week you can't wait to see what's going to happen on snl because they're they're going there and like usually people would not be able to say the kind of shit that they're saying on the air and so there's like they're talking about Epstein. They're making fun of like Hillary in ways that are really below the belt. Like it's like these really shocking kind of things that you can't, how can they be saying that on TV? And so like every week, everybody's like, I can't wait to see what's going on on SNL. They're really airing the dirty laundry of like the elites. And uh, the the person who's publicized the name attached with these scenes, they're, they're, they're written by Jane Shake hyphen Spear. And so, okay, so you could be somebody, could be a writer named Jane Shake hyphen Spear. There's probably a Jane Shakespeare in the phone book, but it kind of sounds like it's a pseudonym, like not really a real name. And there's actually rumors going around for people who are like in Hollywood and in New York and in the know that actually Jane Shakespeare is a pseudonym for Chelsea Clinton. So that's sort of like, that's kind of the thought experiment for like, imagine somebody who is really highly placed in within the government is writing these um, very edgy and uh, at times like seditious, scandalous works that are commenting on things that are, you know, like, here's the thing, we have this, uh, you know, this kind of halcyon, like fantasy of Elizabethan England as this wonderful time to be a writer. And it's like, so happy. It was a police state. It was a terrifying place to live. Um, part of the reason why we think it's so wonderful is due to the propaganda that was like done by Edward Devere to make this seem like, you know, pro tutors like best thing ever. You know, you weren't even allowed if you were in the Elizabethan court to leave the country without the monarch's permission. You know, they, this was like a highly suspicious time where the printing press and the public theater stage had both just been kind of born. And these are the most terrifying threats to government authority that you can imagine. And so there's this kind of counterweight of this um, huge spy network. Christopher Marlowe murdered by, you know, government agents at age 29. Like everybody's writing under a pseudonym at this time. The big issue of the day. Sounds familiar. Oh, does it? Does it sound familiar? (laughs) For real. And yeah, I mean, basically like, so I talk about the Let's Go Brandon. Have you heard me talk about the Let's Go Brandon of it? No. Okay. So basically this is how I, this is my metaphor for Stratfordianism. So it's like, imagine that, well, I guess I I have too many, but this is all I think about all day. So it's like, Let's go, Brandon. Right. So, okay. So people are cheering on this wonderful like race car driver named Brandon and yay, it's let's go, Brandon. And then people are going to go to his hometown and they're going to build a monument of a race car. And it's like, let's go, Brandon. And then it's like, people might be like, oh, you know, who's this guy, Brandon? And they're oh, he's a great race car driver. We love him so much. Let's go, Brandon. But actually beneath that, there's a layer where there's actually like a, you know, a controversial political statement that's being made, but you're making it under a cover of something that seems anodyne. And so that's sort of when the um, the first folio comes out in 1623, long after uh, Will of Stratford's death and long after Edward de Vere's death. Um, this is a time where basically, you know, England has had these, really tumultuous you know century where it's going from like we're catholic and then we're going to burn the protestants now we're protestant we're going to burn the catholics catholic burn the protestants and basically so now um you know james is on the throne and maybe the spanish marriage is going to happen which would mean a big catholic alliance and possibly going back to 
this Catholic era and the noblemen and the highly placed, um, you know, political figures of the day who were kind of Devere's camp. He was dead, but he was sort of like their kind of their guy, like their symbol. They um, they compile his works and they produce them in this sort of like greatest hits compilation. So, um, you know, that's what the first folio is. That's where the first time that all of these works are seen together with the name William Shakespeare, like at least 16 of the plays had never before even been associated with the name William Shakespeare, although they'd been seen around town and produced meant the first time that they're ever attributed to a William Shakespeare is in this like greatest hits compilation with this weird drawing on the cover of it, of this person with this very weird shaped head and um you know this is really i don't know if you saw the tiktok with the two left arms like the illusion of it no no I, this I is a, this honestly that. this is one of the pinned tiktoks on my page and i think it's i refer okay. people to it because it's useful to have the visual if you so a tailor talk about like oh classist you're a classist because you don't believe in whatever stratfordianism so i think in either 1911 or 1917 a tailor in england writes into his newspaper saying Yo, I'm a tailor and I've been looking at this like image of William Shakespeare in the first folio. And by the way, there are no um, verified images of what the man actually looked like. And he's like, that's interesting. Yeah, no. So that's that's a very long story. I don't even think there's time to get into (laughs) that. But basically, it's kind of like a mascot, basically. And so he says what I noticed as a tailor looking at this image is it has two left arms. So you see his doublet and the right arm is actually sewed on backwards of the left arm as a doublet. So it's almost like this MC Escher style optical illusion with two left arms. And so he writes this in, he's like, hmm, that's weird. So basically I kind of lost my, my, my thread here, but that's why I'm like, I'm so tired of the let's go Brandon people who are like, it's a race car driver. We love this race car driver. I'm like, please can we actually try and understand what was really going on here and yeah, so yeah. You know, and the political statement so that's when in 1623 when this first folio comes out in this greatest hits compilation they can't say we love edward devere thank you edward devere for your amazing plays but what they can say is we don't want to be catholic we don't you know we don't want this spanish marriage to happen we are kind of taking a stand let's go shakespeare i got it yeah so I mean, that that is some evidence there. And what uh, because I remember Yarvin speaking on it at length and there are some other like striking details sure, about okay. why. So, yeah, like, so um, like one big thing is, you know, like, for example, Hamlet, Polonius and Hamlet is this is undisputed, is a uh dramatization in some some would say a satire or a parody of William Cecil who was um Edward de Vere's ward when he was growing up as a as a ward under the crown and then later he marries his daughter so he becomes his father-in-law and so this is a person who he has this incredibly kind of uncomfortable and incestuous relationship his entire life where he's basically his finances are under control of this like really annoying manipulative guy who this and so this is his story so people will say oh well William Cecil he was you know a famous dude you know anybody could have parodied him no 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 the way in which he's parodied is not his public persona as a figure of like Elizabeth Dick Cheney kind of right-hand man the way in which the details that that allow us to know who he is are actually his domestic self first for example the really famous speech where he's like you know 
um, giving advice to his son who's about to leave for Paris. And it's, you know, uh, whatever brevity is the soul of wit. And so he go and but it's yeah. the joke is he's going on and on and droning on and on <laughs> advice forever. So actually William Cecil published a book called advice to a son. And it was all advice that he was writing to his son before the son left for Paris, just like in Hamlet, the son is going to Paris. And so it's, and he's going on and on. And so it's like, you know, they're making fun of, you know, this pompous dad who's going on and on about the advice. Another thing is, and this, we know, this is a wild historical detail. Um, He literally, so his daughter, Anne Cecil marries Edward de Vere, famously unhappy. I think there's evidence to suggest that she, like Ophelia, maybe killed herself. Um, But basically- William Cecil during his we have letters in his handwriting that are signed from Anne to my husband Edward de Vere so we know for a fact this creepy weird controlling dad historically was writing love letters in his daughter's name to his future son-in-law this is this is real this is from like a Stratfordian scholars book like you know of of Devere's life. So this is a really weird detail. So whether or not she was copying out in her hand the letters that her dad was writing for her to copy out, or if these were just given to Edward Devere, we don't know that. But he, we have letters in his hand. And so in Hamlet, when you see this figure of Polonius who's spying, so if people may know this, like the figure of Polonius is murdered by Hamlet, like by accident, because he's hiding behind yeah, the curtain, hiding spying yeah. on Hamlet, and then Hamlet like stabs through the curtain. <laughs> You know, and so it's like this is his like incredibly meddling, like overly personal. So I'm like, you know, and here's the truth. So that there are even people who would say, and this is, again, so weird, but there's a. Phoebe, you just cut out for a second. This is sort of disputed. There's most Stratfordians. Okay, basically, yeah, so it's his domestic self. And so the idea that, you know, William, Will of Stratford is, first of all, 14 years younger than Edward de Vere. And yeah. like, so why would he, and it would, he would be risking his life to be mocking a retired government official, like bad move, you know, people like Ben, like, here's the thing, like Ben Johnson, uh, imprisoned, tortured, you know, Will, uh, Christopher Marlowe murdered William Shakespeare. We have no, all the other major writers of the day, or at least have brushes with the law. They're at least censored They're They go to jail. They're, you know, they're fined, they're imprisoned. William Shakespeare has a totally clean rap sheet. Isn't that interesting? He never gets into trouble. Like, and he's Mr. Nobody. Like nobody ever writes, oh, I had lunch or I was at the bar with this guy who's a playwright named William Shakespeare. There's literally zero evidence of that ever. There is zero evidence of people. We have documentation from his life of him getting into like weird litigious lawsuits with his neighbors about like grain Uh and barley and like delivering stones he seems like a horrible guy like like this is a funny thing like this isn't oxfordianism versus stratfordianism at all but there was some academic psychology department in like aberdeen or something in like their like 10 years ago when they were doing a study of starting to cut out again Um, oh no i have really bad no no, it's all right Okay, should I circle back? Yeah, circle back for 
Yeah. So they, they did this scholarly study at the, like, I think University of Aberdeen, but I'm not sure. It was just a psychology department doing like a psychology exercise. And they basically were looking at like all of his weird lawsuits. I think once he he charges like a priest who comes to his house in Stratford-upon-Avon, he like charges him for a cup of ale or something. Like they were like, this guy's like a sociopath. <laughs> that was how they like <laughs> characterized Will of Stratford. You know, he's just like this hustler businessman. His dad was like illegally, basically, you know, the thing that he was the son of a glover. His dad was like, also a butcher, also a shepherd, but didn't have a license. And so people were like, he can't have been these things. He was, he was licensed, but he's, he was doing it illegally. I'm getting, yeah. I'm getting sidetracked. No, You're no, asking I mean, for that's, evidence. That's um, relevant. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm just like, who, why would he have written this about a guy who was not his father-in-law? <laughs> like, yeah, you know, like, yeah. this is, this is, this is written. This is. And so even like Hamlet's book, which is again, widely the book that he brings on, which isn't identified in the play, but through subtle hints within the text is universally accepted to be um, Cardanus's comfort. This is a book that Edward de Vere paid to have published. He like commissioned this work. This was his favorite book and it's about arms and letters and like how to be um, like a nobleman. So this is like known right. to be what Hamlet's book is. Um, then there are all these, like a million other details of like, uh, you know, for example, um, uh, you know, Will of Stratford never left England. Yeah, um, yeah, that was one thing that really struck me that the kind of like insight in Shakespeare's various plays into like the intricacies of uh, like even like nautical stuff or whatever. Yeah. It's just like it's you you wouldn't know that having never left England. So Correct. yeah, so stuff stuff of that nature. And what really jumped out at me was uh like apparently he would sign his name with an x is that correct um will of stratford so we yeah. only have six literally the only things that we have from him at all are six signatures i think that they're not even all by his hand the thing is if you were like a in that somebody like you know most people in stratford upon avon were not literate you yeah. know all the biographies will say we probably must have gone to the grammar school. No evidence of this. And in fact, he was the eldest son in a working class family. And those that's who would have gone to work. Like, you know, that would not be who would go to that school, given his yeah. like, background. Um, uh, and so basically they, we have six signatures. Again, this is something that's useful to look at. They all are spelled differently. There, none of them are spelled shake hyphen spear, which the hyphen was um, no, like, that's like almost like if somebody says they're like, you know, repeat respecter 35, you don't think that's their real name. You think that's a screen name. A hyphen was the Elizabethan era equivalent of signifying that this was a like a username. Basically, this is a pseudonym. I see. And yeah. so, but none of his Shakespeare is, has a pseudonym. If you look at most of the spellings of the other people in his family tree, it's like Shakespeare. It seems like that, like there's many more spellings of S-H-A-X-P-E-R. So it like, it seems like it's the medial A, not the long A, but I don't even get into that. But people will be like, his name, I don't care, frankly. But yeah, so we just have these six signatures that look like they're not done by, they're not rendered by a literate person. I yeah. think there is zero evidence to suspect whatsoever that Will of Stratford was literate at all. I think there's no, there's, it's just not. And here's, this is what I say. I'm like, okay, fine. Let's say that there was a guy and it's possible, you know, okay. So there's the guy who went from an illiterate background, which we know he had, he was not raised in a literate family, but he 
was just a genius and he loved literature and he went around the world and he educated himself in a variety. He basically gave himself the equivalent of a law degree. You know, Comedy of Errors has 150 legal references alone. And it was um, probably originally produced in law schools, just the way that like nowadays, like acapella groups kind of happen on college campuses. Theater was something that happened in these law schools. And so probably Comedy of Errors was something that had a lot of law jokes that would have appealed to law students. Part the beginning of, the- of our disastrous effect on Western civilization. <laughs> Fair Lawyers. enough. But, um, you know, so that's one of the reasons why people were initially looking at Francis Bacon, because they were like, Shakespeare had to have been a lawyer or somebody who had law training. So let's say this, sorry, let's say Will of Stratford gets really in, you know, studies all this stuff, learns about nautical terms, learns about Italian architecture, even though he's never been there, learns about law, and he writes the most amazing works that have ever been composed in English literature. Okay, cool. Would that person then not teach his kids to read and write? Because- exactly. That person did not have kids who could read and write. And so that to me is the end of the whole story. I think of Frederick Douglass, who's, you know, was raised as a, you know, a black slave, illiterate. And then he kind of rose up and and educated himself and wrote these books. And people were skeptical and thought, no way a former black slave who was illiterate could write these books. Well, the difference there is if you look at Frederick Douglass's kids, you have newspapermen, journalists, teachers. These people were literate you know, he understood the power of literacy and he taught his kids how to read. So for me, it's just like, what story are we even telling here? Like, how does this narrative even make sense? Like, or even the the romance of it, what's romantic about a guy who doesn't teach his kids how to read? Like, I don't get it. For first of all, we know that a version of The Tempest um, was performed in the Elizabethan court as like a courtly revel or entertainment as early as like the 15, 1583, because in 1583, Philip Sidney um, publishes a volume basically making fun of it and saying like, it's called, uh, what is it? An apology for poetry. And he's talking shit about like, he's like, not all poetry has to be stupid. Like something about a shipwreck or a guy who's like a cannibal on a rock. Like, so, you know, with a, a like a primal, a primitive guy who's like making rocks and fire. And, you know, there's like a shipwreck. And we know that there is documentation of a courtly revel where Edward DeVere participated in, where it was like, they had a massive shipwreck and this okay. is really cool. This is why he bankrupted himself. They had a shipwreck and like some, I don't know how they pulled it off, but it was like a stage set and it was a shipwreck. And then out of it, Edward DeVere dances out of it and he delivers Queen Elizabeth a massive jewel. This is like well-documented. The French ambassador who was there visiting at the time wrote about it. Um, and so, uh, you know, so this is in the 1580s. Um, okay. And then what they say, the, this is this is how they say, this is the Stratfordian case. They say it has to have been published in 1611 because we know that the Tempest must have been based off of William Strachey's descriptions of a Bermuda shipwreck that took place in like 1610. So, okay, yeah. first of all, these letters by William Strachey, I mean, have you seen the Tempest? I have, yeah. It's not really about a shipwreck. Like there's a lot of stuff that happens. It's actually much more yeah. drawn from like pastoral commedia dell'arte. In the beginning, there is a ship that's wrecked. So the whole argument, which is sort of so thin and weird, is premised on this idea that this play couldn't have been written without copying this description of a shipwreck in Bermuda, which is very weird because it's not even a play about a shipwreck. But what's even weirder is that this was a private letter that was written in the early 1600s, but it wasn't, of course, it wasn't published until 1625. Again, after Will of Stratford was dead in 1616. So they're saying that somehow 
he saw this guy's personal letter of correspondence describing this Bermuda shipwreck and then yeah. wrote the Tempest. I'm like, that's the thinnest. And even Stratfordians are now backing away from it because it's embarrassing. And there's a Stratfordian scholar who said it, quote, has nothing in common, quote, with the play. But that's the that's the second argument or the first substantive argument that they'll try and be like, how stupid are you? We're conspiracy theorists. He's dead. Like he was dead when the Tempest was written. It's like, why are you like, the thing is people haven't read Shakespeare. You know what I mean? Like people, because we're sort of in a post-literate society and no one even knows what we're arguing about. People can make these ridiculous claims. Like I was really disappointed, you know, hearing people saying like, you know, oh, well, who says that Shakespeare's a lawyer? Shakespeare wasn't a lawyer. There's not a lot of law like references. And like, that's a, that's a silly argument. Like that's below the level of the threshold of what should be required as expertise and competence to even engage in this discussion. I think even just the fact is that the plays are misdated. They're, they're referencing political events that are happening in the 1570s and 1580s. Um, And even like there was, again, Stratfordian scholars keep confounding themselves and being like all confused because there was a guy who did a rigorous and real project where he was using like the kind of like types of slang and language and kind of like cultural references to assess the age of each of these writers and what he found is he compared like Christopher Marlowe and like to you know to and Ben Jonson and then like Shakespeare's plays and he was like this is weird Shakespeare should have been the same age as Christopher Marlowe but it's actually saying that he's like 15 14 years older than Christopher Marlowe on the basis of things like, for example, um, you know, the the New World and the Virginia Colony and then tobacco. So then all of a sudden, just like nowadays, it'd be really weird if you were reading a play and they were like, oh, it's from the 90s, but it's about crypto bros. You know what I mean? Whereas it would be like, that yeah. feels like it's sort of more from like the 2020s or something. That's confusing. So it's like tobacco in like Virginia is something that would have happened like if if Shakespeare was young, as young as we think he was, he should have been talking about tobacco and he never was. He was instead talking about stuff that like an old dude would be talking about. So, yeah. Yeah. So, OK, this is what I remembered. I remembered that there is like an actually very good story for why Devere, um, you know, disguised his work as Shakespeare's from, from what I recall, from what I remember from that speech by Curtis and various readings that he was and correct me if I'm wrong I'm sure I'm getting some details incorrect but he was uh disfavored for some reason in the Elizabethan court and he wanted to get his work published so he needed uh you know he needed a patsy a pseudonym he needed someone to you know put his work out there and that made, made total sense because like it's actually very analogous to the situation today, if you want to write stuff that's going to offend people or or if you are disfavored, you need to um, either write under a pseudonym. And certainly if you're actually the presenter, the producer of these plays and, you know, perhaps Shakespeare was not the producer, but he was probably involved in some capacity in the production. You did need a man on the ground. You um, yeah, you in, in those days, uh, you know, I you know, a pseudonym was not enough. You needed someone who actually appeared to be the guy in the theater who, you know, did the the direct directing or producing the, the various activities that are now specialized and other people do them. He, um, you know, he needed someone on the ground. And so that, that makes total sense to me. If you are someone who, if you write a play, no one's going to see it because they're going to be like, the queen hates that guy. I'm going to get taxed very heavily if I see this. Maybe I'll get beat up. Uh, this this guy, he'll be shut down immediately. The, the the Queen's men will show up and beat him up. Like that's not, you know, you're you're not gonna get your place. So like 
in my estimation, from what I understand, and I'm probably getting some of this incorrect, but I imagine that De Beer was this guy who just wanted to write. He wanted to get his stuff out there. And he's like, I got to find a way to do this. So I'm going to get this Shakespeare guy and he's going to be my public face so I could get my writing out there. And so, yeah, that's, um, I mean, that's what, uh, what I have done with, um, you know, uh, until recently with Philip Roth, he's been my public face for my writing. And so now I need to find a new, a new guy, but cool. Well, no, yeah, I think, I think you're right. So just to kind of add to it, um, first of all, Robert Prechter, who's like my hero and he, um, recently published his like 25 volume work that he spent a quarter century doing and it's finding all the other pseudonyms that Edward Devere used throughout his whole life so this is going to turn into a long podcast about Oxfordianism but that's kind of what I like to do anyway but um <laughs> basically what he was thinking to himself is okay so we have juvenilia from Edward Devere we have some song lyrics and poems that are from when he's young and yeah. then nothing 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 and then all of a sudden a 36 volume compendium of the, you know, then it's like, then Shakespeare plays. So it's like, isn't that weird? It's like, wouldn't you think you would see somebody evolving or like kind of, you know, how do you wake up one morning when you're 42 and write Hamlet if all you've ever written is some song lyrics when you're like yeah, a teen? Yeah. And so he was like, it's quiet, too quiet. And so he dug up a massive amount of work, which shows the progression of these works and how they were being revised and, and reiterated. And which is funny because Ben Johnson in his poem about William Shakespeare says how he's the anvil that's striking twice, how he was obsessed with like correcting and revising and revising. And that was how he worked. And so one thing that Prechter found is that he was doing this all the time. He was often in the practice of, for example, there was a tailor named John God who was in the Tailor's Guild and so what he what what um what uh, Prechter found is if you look through Elizabethan letters, there's this really weird phenomenon where there's all of these people who never published anything, never published anything, never published anything, published one masterpiece work that seems to have, if not like seems like it's like almost directly plagiarized from or has identical features to many of Shakespeare's works. And then never published again, never published again, never published again. So people who would like have one Shakespearean-esque masterpiece and then never publish again. And that's happening all over the place, you know, everywhere you look in this Elizabethan period. So for example, this tailor, John God, publishes like a verse poem that is very similar in style to Venus and Adonis and, you know, Rape of Lucrece and things like this. And so that he was basically, that's Edward Devere's pseudonym. And so he was a real person. It's an alonym, not just a pseudonym, but an alonym. The idea that you would use somebody who was around and a Okay. Yeah. Person. And so that's what makes the whole thing so sticky. It'd be one thing to say, okay, Mencius Moldbug, not a real person. But wouldn't it be more confusing if, like, you know, if it was an alonym instead of a pseudonym? And so it was plausible that this other person could have been the person writing it. But, you know, so that's why we get yeah, it all yeah. twisted. And it's just really blurry. He was using, you know, people who were choir masters in these, like, you know, boys troops you know directors of things people people adjacent to the theater like for example somebody who you know was like kind of a backstage hand like will of stratford who then maybe is compensated let's say for his work which was dangerous as things are heating up as it's like you could literally go to jail or be killed for writing things that are seditious or controversial so this is a very weird historical detail, but Elizabeth Trentham, who was Edward Devere's last wife, has in her will a thing where she's like, please continue to pay an allowance salary to my dumb man. That's weird. 
what does that mean? And so it seems like it would be it would make sense if this guy is incurring this level of risk. And and basically, I think part of why the pseudonymity, um, not just I think because he you know has his reputation as an earl to uphold, although I think that's a part of it. But also because as the heat of the Elizabethan succession is sort of accelerating, like imagine the climate of like a U.S. you know election where it's like there's no incumbent, nobody knows who's next, um, and it's going to be everybody playing really dirty. So, um, yeah, basically in this climate, Edward de Vere is writing highly political plays, like for example, Richard the Third, which is parodying the Machiavellian hunchback who was in fact his brother-in-law who was Robert Cecil who was trying to pick the next king so you know he's saying things that are politically controversial and so you know Will of Stratford is incurring risks by being the quote-unquote dumb man or front man of these works you know and so that's why he's being paid that's why all of a sudden he gets these you know shares in the in the theater company why he gets to buy the biggest house in Stratford-upon-Avon when you know he doesn't have any record of having made money selling plays and in fact, many of the plays um, that are published don't have his name on them. And so even though he was very litigious, he's charging a priest for, for pouring him alcohol. He's, you know, he's suing his neighbors for like barley and all these little things. He never sued a publisher for publishing his works without his name on it or not giving him proceeds. You'd think in his character and personality, he would have been doing that. So he wasn't yeah. making money as a playwright. Ben Johnson said that he was never made any money his entire life. And he was, you know, after Devere died, he was like kind of the head of all these courts and rebels in the in the Jacobean court. So he was working and very successful, but he made like 200 pounds his whole life. Whereas like Will of Stratford all of a sudden comes into like a massive amount of money that he didn't earn from writing. Very interesting. It is very there's, interesting. Uh, there's something going on with this Will of Stratford. Mm-hmm. Um, on that note, I think I'm going to refill my drink. I will be right back. And sure. uh, maybe we jump into the reception to the Devere Ball. Right. And, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, indeed, Eco Village and uh, other things. Super. I'll be here. All right. So we are back. And um, yeah, we are ready to dive into the. Um, not just the evening, but the uh, the reception to the De Vere Ball, which uh, was somewhat uh, contentious or divided. But um, yeah, perhaps not entirely surprisingly so. But um, I, I think and, um, you know, I, I can say I had a very good time. I think everyone who came out had a very good time. And uh, so, yeah, but uh, immediately, as soon as, you know, it's uh, the, the photos made their, their rounds, you kind of had both the Chapo cells and people on the, the right, the distant right, whatever you want to call it, uh, weighing in with <laughs> their, their opinions about your party. <laughs> so uh, what, uh, what say you, Phoebe? Yeah, I was so relieved that there was any type of response um, and was <laughs> delighted that there was such a, a vocal response. Um, you know, my biggest fear would be that I was like, it was just going to kind of fizzle out. You know, my goal was to get attention and raise awareness about the Oxfordian theory of Shakespeare authorship. And I think by that metric, it was like a big success. Like, and by the way, for the Chapo cells, like talk about like, I, I don't know, man, like living in their heads rent free. Like, did you see the freaking um, the 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 GQ profile of the Chapo guys that just came out? 
Oh, no, I, I avoid most traditional media. <laughs> no, me too. But like Nick no. sent this to me. So it's they're being profiled okay. in GQ, which is just funny given like, you know. Yeah, no, of course. They're, you know, very uh, anti-establishment. They're very anti-establishment with their GQ photo shoot. But anyway, um, so they go, this is Will Menneker talking. I think the one thing that we can agree on, though, is that it's of the utmost importance to establish the provenance of Shakespeare's plays. People need to be very aware that the person we think of as William Shakespeare is not actually the person who wrote the plays. It's actually the Earl of Oxford, not some lowborn son of a glover. This is the issue that's tearing New York apart right now. I got to get the fuck out of there. And then the interviewer says, Dime Square is up in arms. And then one of the other guys goes, you can't have people walking around. It goes on and on. He goes, you can't have people walking around thinking a commoner wrote The Tempest. The guy says, I, all I can say about it all is that there seems to be about seven people that have had 40 articles written about them. And the guy goes, right, in the same way that the dirtbag left was actually a very small circle. And then they say, well, basically walking around Brooklyn now, it's like the Jets and the Sharks. There's the Stratfordians and the Oxfordians. And when they see each other, they're wearing different bandanas to signify their allegiance to either William Shakespeare or Edward Devere. And there's rumbles happening. And I'm trying to stay neutral on this. I don't want to get caught in the crossfire. So I'm like, yeah. That's amazing. Oh, like, no, yeah, absolutely. This is like incredible press. Like, I'm like, I don't know if they're trying to mock me or like, not me. I, I mean, don't think like. Yeah, even if they are like. It's, even if it's they great. are like, what talk about a wonderful homage. I'm like, you know, I'm like, I couldn't have paid for somebody to say like cooler things that make it seem like more cool to be an Oxfordian. Like yeah. I was blown away by this. So, um, you know, like if, if you see. could take kind of like a cross section, like I now know, like not just because you've been on the pod, but because I went to the party and, and otherwise I probably would have heard about it. I know about the Edward DeVere Shakespeare author authorship question and Will Menneker does. And mm -hmm. like we occupy like different media, different like I like I'm sure I don't I read very little of the stuff he does. He probably reads very little of the stuff I do. And regardless, we, we both, you know, have heard about this. And, you know, and that is, I mean, um, entirely thanks to you and your uh, your crew of people Thank who you. put this on, uh, which may yeah. be a good opportunity to kind of name drop the, you know, the people who helped you, uh, you know, make mm -hmm. this happen. Totally. Well, um, shout out to amazing um, Larissa something on Twitter, who is my Twitter wife and uh, co-conspirator, <laughs> um, Junker Joe, who is so badass. Um, I thought her reading at the event that you guys were both at, the Tear House event was Absolutely. like, I was, I was so proud of her. Like she is a fierce, like people haven't even begun. I know she has like a big Twitter following and people like know who she is and stuff, but like people have not even begun to see the, the tip of the iceberg of what she's capable of. Like yeah. she's entering her mommy blogger era and like, I think is, you know, going to be an unstoppable force. Um, Jack, the perfume nationalist came along for the ride and was a good sport and, um, you know, added his uh, signature uh, brand of, I was going to say quad uh, the proceedings and um, Curtis, who I knew um, from a while back and uh, was a, I knew he was an Oxfordian. And so I asked him to write an article for the zine. His wonderful daughter also wrote an article for the zine and they both came and dressed up and were, you know, wonderful. Um, so yeah, big shout out to them. I was really grateful that the Red Scare girls, you know, showed up and tweeted about it. That was awesome um and dasha um, won best dressed as i recall yes dasha won best dressed yes 
Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's, those are the, I think the kind of bold face names, Matt Forney was seen in many <laughs> photos. <laughs> um, and yeah, that, that was the party. I think like, that's the kind of funny thing, you know, it was way too easy to hack people's attention. Um, clearly there is a very low, um, like antibiotic ability right now for mainstream institutions to kind of defend themselves against getting hacked in this way. Clearly it's too boring what's being sold. Like the fact that like, again, like I think Will Menneker is right or whoever said it in the Chapel article, like there are seven people getting 40 articles written about them each, you know? And I think that the fact that like people are like, the party was kind of mid, like I think everyone had a nice time, but it was not any of the any of what people perceived it to be were wrong you know what i mean like i think it was a pretty fun wholesome cocktail party yeah no where, absolutely like, where hank whittemore who oh my god i can't believe i didn't mention him hank whittemore one of my heroes incredible scholar came and recited sonnets and you know people brought their kids and it was like wonderful and wholesome oh and oh my god and uh fucking uh Zalame, pariah the doll this course, that was yeah. impromptu that was one probably my favorite moment of the evening was that I was all stressed out because the loot player hadn't brought an amp because the, 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 our first string loot player had COVID. So he sent in a backup guy, but then he didn't have an amp. And so it was too quiet. And I was like miserable and losing my mind. Um, and then like uh, Zalame approached me and was like, I want to sing. And I was like, excellent. And so that, <laughs> that came spontaneously. Um, so that was like my favorite moment. And I think that kind of encapsulated the spirit of what the event was about, which is like, let's celebrate culture. Let's be theater dorks. And, and, you know, hang out together Absolutely. so i think like what people imagined that the party was i think people imagined it as like um i guess like it was so weird for me to be like oh people think that i'm not actually sincere about my interest in oxfordianism like <laughs> lol <laughs> like jokes on them <laughs> like yeah literally like you know that was just like the last thing i would imagine was that people wouldn't you know, like it's 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 an obvious assumption for people to make that I was trying to go for some sort of like set of a Kantism, like trad cath, like aloof, dark academia, hipster vibe. Whereas it's like, no, like this is like obviously like my my big fat gay Jewish, like, you know, <laughs> Shakespeare party, you know, and like, why wouldn't people yeah. that was straightforward, but people just didn't know me or have the context or their framing was wrong. Or if I'm being honest, I was a little bit uh, cheeky in my framing of it by inviting those figures there um, to be uh, heard from. And yeah, like people love to get mad. I felt sad because I was like, I think people are like, I was like the sad feeling if I felt one besides glee and happiness was like, it bums me out that people clearly like want to go to a party, like for real, like there was clearly like people were so jealous or resentful or felt yeah. like they, they're being shut out of something. And I'm like, I would have loved for them to be there. You know what I mean? Like the people that are Photoshopping like guns, shooting, you know, cross target, like whatever, like guns at the party or whatever, like he's the worst people in the world, like are clearly like lonely and probably like would be really nice and sweet if you met them. Like, you know, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I didn't want to make people feel bad, but, um, yeah, I mean, this was a real like cross section of people that it, you know, it, like, for instance, I um, go to a, a number of like New York City cocktail type parties um, in the, you know, more mainstream literary circles, just for various reasons. 
And uh, uh, so th this is like the only sort of literary event where I could argue uh, why uh, it should be Trump instead of DeSantis with like a kind of like more neocon type, you know, individual. Like I, I can't I can't argue for Trump at like, you know, normal uh, literary True. events. I would be, maybe uh, I'm not giving myself credit for how unique it was as an event. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I think you had you had people more like me there. You had uh, people like, um, you know, uh, more kind of just um, center right people, lawyers or whatever, whatever, who are more. I had like people kind from my of, synagogue who were like, oh, Phoebe's hosting an event. Let's show well, up. And there, no, there you go. Yeah. have no idea who any of these are. You know, it was just very eclectic in terms of who was there. Yeah, um, exactly. And like, and people were not really close-minded. They were like, like, yeah. I was talking to like Claremont fellows, and it's like an anonymous internet shit posters talking with you know scholars, and it, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a really good night. And you know, kudos to you for pulling it Thank off you. And, and getting everyone together, and for your whole team for you know. Thank you. Making, yeah, no, I mean, I couldn't have done it without them. Like, I think for me, the real lesson and a takeaway was how grateful I am to have such uh, solid, supportive friends. Um, and, uh, you know, even in the midst of the kind of weird maelstrom of the internet attention and the hate, um, like, which I, I mean, if, you know, if I were subjected to that every day, like if somebody's like a celebrity and they're just dealing with that constantly, it's hard. It gets to you. You know what I mean? And like yeah. the stupidest, dumb, little, little weird thing is the thing that ends up like you think about it like late at night. You know what I mean? Like it is weird like that. Um, yeah. And so having people like I think what made me feel good was that even though people could make these like wild speculations and talk shit about the party, I knew that everybody was there was my friend and would, you know, vouch for me and not make fun yeah. of and break ranks, you know? So that made me feel strong and confident when people were getting it so wrong or, you know, saying whatever they wanted to say in good or bad faith, you know, depending on their persuasion. Um, yeah. And another thing is like, when you talk about the cocktail party, like I do think it's like, cause I'm sure you're going, when you're talking about the events that you're going to, they're like pretty nice or like there's glam events. Whereas like, maybe it's maybe like a bunch of people on Twitter, like, like Joe was joking about how like everyone was saying it was Peter Thiel funded. And it's like, we had plastic cups, you know, <laughs> like we had a cheese. Plate. <laughs> and so it's like, people see pictures of like people at a cocktail party having cheese on a plate and think like, this is unimaginable luxury. Like what billionaire is funding this? And it's just like, yeah. that's so sad. We're in this like really impoverished um, <laughs> landscape. So yeah, no, but I'm, I'm looking forward to the winter ball. Absolutely. And that is happening. I correct me if I'm wrong, but January 28th, Correct. everyone sir. should get tickets to Devere Ball part two. It breaks the internet. It breaks New York City uh, there. You know, who knows what will happen? It's uh, I it's certainly an, don't know. It's a night of mystery and intrigue. Yeah, no, I hope it will be. I mean, I I mean, I'm trying to think like what well, are any, the outcomes? Any scoops, any headliners that we should know will uh will Curtis or Jack be returning? Um, I'm not going to uh speak on the lineup. I really want people to be surprised. Um, we have some okay. tricks up our sleeves, um, some uh, returning guests, we have some never before seen guests. Um, I feel like it's gonna be pretty good. Um and uh yeah i don't know you know it's funny because it's like i feel like there is going to be inevitably like more exposure this time or like 
I'm still waiting for somebody to write that piece about like, you know, the Oxfordianism dime square trend or something. And it's kind of wild to me that it hasn't happened yet. And that I'm is like, wild. Oh, I would think it would have happened, but I know it's funny. I think like journalists are so fucking dumb. People are yeah. so lazy and dumb. Like they're just so dumb and lazy. That's well, I, I, I hope they keep being dumb and lazy because I don't like it. <laughs> totally. No, I know it. No, I know. It's mean. And no, because I'm thinking I'm like, I'm eventually like I'm out there and I'm using my full name, but like eventually like they're going to kind of come for me. Yeah. And I hope again, I hope like my prayer is look, you know, I, I see myself as this very, very, very small piece of this long lineage and tradition of like Oxfordianism and people like starting like Ben Johnson as the original, let's say Saul of Tarsus of the whole shebang, you know, and like, um, you know, the, the people that have fought to bring the truth to light and have, you know, busted their asses and then I'm like this you know for me I think of myself as like you know in the in the battlefield there's the guy on the horse there's what's it called oh my god um the guy with the trumpet who comes out in a war and they're like like what's that called this not the steward the herald I'm the herald okay yeah I'm like I'm just trying to be like a sassy little herald that's gonna you know bring attention to the incredible scholarly work that's been done by people that are so much smarter and harder working than me. So yeah. I don't know, I and I think you really humble. did that. That's like, you know, it's <laughs> like people know it. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think like they could have had a, a better, like, I don't think an academic movement has had a more committed and better spokesman than the Shakespeare authors. I mean, like it, it goes to the, the point where like, and this is probably a good segue into uh eco village. Like sure. when you, invited me to attend the premiere again sorry i couldn't make it Yeah, i'll just say it's not a premiere it was like a small private screening it's important to have that distinction for festival submissions etc that was just like a chill thing that we were hanging out watching the movie private got got you close friends but uh yeah so when I got that invitation, I thought, okay, this is almost certainly a d- documentary about a bunch of beer. <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah, it was a busy week anyways. But I'm just like, I know a lot about this DeVere guy by now. I, but I mean, that is the extent to which you have like kind of melded your, you know, yourself with the Shakespeare author authorship question. And like to the extent to which you publicized it and made it like, I mean, I think... Yeah, academic movements have not had uh, better uh, publicists than you. Wow, I'm so honored. Thank you. I've never thought of academic movements having a publicist. So this is like even new ground. (laughs) I'm trying to think. I mean, I mean, I'm thinking about the Netflix series right now with um, Graham Hancock. Yeah, I've been watching that. That's uh, yeah. No, it's. Yeah, I mean, that's another like part of like my notes and like we could just get into that right now and then get into Eco Village later. But uh, you're you're frozen for a moment, um, Phoebe. You You can talk about Eco Village now if you want. Um, All right, you're you're back. You froze for a moment. But uh, yeah, so, okay. So we can, yeah, we'll, I think, jump into Eco Village if that's- Let's do uh, it, yeah. Yeah, so- I watched this the other night and frankly, I was, you know, very impressed. It was very entertaining, very well done. It's based on a play that you did at St. Clement's and uh, yeah, just in, in brief, it is a, uh, a girl who uh, is attracted to this uh, 
this commune type environment. She sees a commercial for it online. She wants to go. She drops everything. It's not clear what is even going on in her life that she drops, but she drops it. She hitchhikes to get to this commune. She gets there and uh, everyone there is like a dick to her. It's weird. And <laughs> she's like, you know, trying to fit in with these kind of like hippies, but also like very like aggressive and like socially competitive hippies. It as the movie goes on, I don't want to give any spoilers, but it, it becomes more of like a cult environment. And it's like it's kind of like an uncomfortable situation that she finds herself in. She also has a love interest. And that's part of it, how he the love interest, uh, the the love interest name is Jake. The girl is uh, Robin. Robin. And uh, yeah, and so like it's a love story set against a backdrop of a cult, basically a kind of like commune like cult. And wow. it uh, it was to me very reminiscent of um, I think in my notes, I said Christopher Guest meets David Lynch or maybe even toward the end. I'm not going to give any spoilers, but there are like twists and turns that make it even like David Fincher esque. And so it's like this weird meld of farce meets kind of like thriller caper. And like, it's something I haven't seen done in a long time. It's done very well. And it kind of like excoriates this uh, kind of like commune, hippie, progressive class, while also, um, you know, you find out uh, in, in some respects uh, that it's uh, very critical of the kind of like, PMC, even upper class, wealthy, moneyed class as, as well. So this is like a kind of um, it, it actually uh, it felt uh, vaguely, um, you know, I mean, this is in the news right now or in the uh, the culture, very white lotusy in a sense, kind of like had an incisive take on the current cultural moment uh, from a perspective that is, you know, clearly not like uh establishment progressive i think it probably is a disservice to even you know try to describe what political slant the perspective has it's um but it, it's a you know a, a critical take on our current cultural moment but i've said too much you you, you no tell yeah me. thank you no it's funny this is like this is like the first like interview I've done about the movie so it's funny it's just like it's like I've talked a lot about Edward Devere and it's like this is like this different this is like I'm shifting yeah, yeah. so it's cool thank you I, I love that as a summary um it was sort of based off of um an experience that I had it's funny you say like a love story with the backdrop of a cult which is like basically <laughs> I am um, it's based off of um the summer after college I went to um the bread and puppet theater in Vermont which is like I wouldn't say it's fame. Like it has a history and it people like who are in theater circles have heard of it. It was really amazing. And I was like, I fell in love there for the first time against the backdrop of this like really culty, weird community. And I think it was this, it was for me, it was like this sort of juxtaposition of like the kind of terror of what it felt like to fall in love versus what I'd always imagined it would feel like and how much more like brutal and bloody and upsetting it was as an experience and just the kind of anxiety and the desire for control and, and, um, and falling for somebody who was bad news in many respects or complicated and my own blind spots and and that kind of felt you, you froze for a moment there baby it's the landscape of 
this like extraordinarily beautiful all my fault no 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 hear me now? I, I hear okay, you yeah. now yeah so you uh yeah, you were describing yeah. how you um it, you fell in love and it was you know with someone who uh perhaps had some issues himself or like what is love and... like you know or it was like what what did I want from this person what was it that I was like yeah oh, should I let me turn off the video for like a second is this yeah. better maybe okay um, um so far yeah 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 no and I think it was like I think I was just like um wanting yeah and just it was like against the backdrop of like this place that was so idealistic on its surface and so beautiful but and it was like this beautiful vision of like nature but like what is nature what is human nature um and I think I was struggling with that question like trying to understand like how can you have dignity in sexuality where so much so much so much of ourselves is hidden from ourselves like so much of our motivations are secret even to ourselves um in terms of especially what attracts us to other people so that was kind of what I wanted to um capture in the play um and then um it kind of changed a lot in translation from the play to the screen um but I'm really proud of the movie it was hard uh uh movie making as a theater person I think I underestimated I'm like oh I'm a theater person I, I get what it's about filmmaking was really challenging and just like the physical kind of grueling nature of it and um yeah. how technological it is and um yeah it was hard so I'm, I'm I'm like I the play weirdly disappointed me in terms of how it came out like it was like it just I never felt watching it like I captured it I felt like the kind of chemistry was off between the leads and just like the humor and the beats and the pacing like it just didn't click together and I feel like that was like reflected in like the reviews or whatever that we got which who cares but like it was just like I was disappointed with how the play turned out whereas with the movie it was like a brutal miserable experience in a lot of ways <laughs> the play was sort of a happier somewhat experience and yet I feel like when I watch the movie, I'm like, oh yeah, I did it. Like I captured yeah. it. And I think that speaks to kind of like the differences and the kind of perverted incentives and like the kind of uh, in film where you can just sort of like have a horrible time. But if the, what captures, what the camera captures looks pretty, you're in good shape. So it's like kind of weird. Yeah. And so this play was uh, what in like the industry would be called, I, I assume it was a play with music. So no, say, nope. no, wasn't. That's that changed in the movie when I adapted it to screen because okay. weirdly I read like my friend's dad wrote a book about like like of how to make it in the movies and um I guess I'll plug the book Dean Silvers's book like my friend Tyler Tyler Silvers was like you should read my dad's book and I read his dad's book and it was talking about like if you're a first time filmmaker like what genre should you make and they're like well everyone makes a drama or a comedy but if you make like a sci-fi thing it's different and then I was like I should make a musical because I'm a musical theater person and I feel like that will translate really well and it'll help enhance the story and it became my favorite part about the movie like I'm so proud of the music um yeah and I also was, did the soundtrack was that me. your songs yeah I thought so because that you were singing those songs yeah. right all right I thought that was your voice yeah yeah so that, yeah uh, so, yeah no good songs like thanks yeah. yeah I'm really proud of the musical elements that was really for me what the film was about um uh and, and the parts that I'm proudest of so you know we're in the midst of this journey now of at the very beginning of you know screening it for friends and and people and and trying to get people's eyes on it and then submitting it to festivals and and you know yeah 
you're out. You're uh, cutting out there. Um, we'll, we'll hopefully have you back in a moment. All right. Now you're back. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah so no, you're so submitting, submitting it to friends and you, you're at this point where I assume you're submitting it to festivals yep. and trying to find a distributor. Yep. And yeah, that, I mean, like, I think that this, you know, at this kind of like current cultural moment, it's like, it's a good sell. Like, I mean, it's Thanks. not going to really alienate anyone, but it That's also is like, critical of the current like it, it felt very you know not like it in many ways but as i said at the beginning very white lotusy very successiony uh perhaps you know um you you are a playwright and playwrights have uh written many of the succession episodes so maybe there's some magic in the water there but um yeah it i mean what struck me also was just kind of I, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but like you think it's one thing, it becomes something else. And so the parts that didn't like watching it, that didn't make sense at the beginning, by the end, completely makes sense. And Thanks. No, that's the scary part. And like my control freakness of it is it is such a slow burn and it is kind of like this onion where you kind of peel the layers. And I think by the, you really don't get. I feel like you don't really have the sense of satisfaction of knowing what it is that you just watched until the last like 10 minutes of it. And so it really asks a lot of the audience to kind of like bear with me and to like trust that it's going in a direction and to not be like, oh, this isn't a my kind of thing and, and peeling off. So that's why I think like kind of figuring out how to like present it to people or crafting it or hoping that like that kind of buzz starts to generate or that people think that it's worth sitting with um, just because yeah. it's sort of like a, it kind of creeps up on you. So, you know, prayers up. <laughs> As someone with a novel who where the uh, the epilogue, the last two or three pages completely recasts your understanding of the novel, I, I very much like um, the kind of like the button endings that kind of make you reconsider the whole piece. That's you know what? You're right. And I think that is, frankly, what people find uh twists like you know what I mean like that's the thing it's like I love twists like I'm a big plot person I'm a big story person yeah and there's, there's nothing that gets like kind of like you know blows my skirt up more than thinking that you're in one thing and then trusting the artist or you know the person who created the work to kind of flip it over yeah. and um that is the most sensitive thing but in order to execute that device sorry I think my neighbors are watching soccer I'm gonna assume no, no, it's I didn't hear anything. I'm an, I'm finding it annoying. I'm like, guys, right. relax. Oh, but, I, I can't um, even hear it. Okay, fair enough. Um, but um, yeah, no. In order to execute a twist, you have to sell people something else and have them sit with it for a while. So that's always me. I'm always like, if you can get in like 40 minutes into it, you'll think, you know. And then I'm like, wait, just wait. And so, no. But people have responded really well. Like it's been gratifying. Like I think I get increasingly confident. Like each of these little screenings that I have, it feels like um. I can trust the material now and that people um, show up and enjoy it. Yeah. That's the thing. It's funny. Cause it's, you watched it at home. You had to watch it. Cause we were doing this interview, but it's <laughs> like, you know, I think that it's like what I've had so far. Most of the experiences are, are these like screenings in person, which I think is like the ideal way to experience a movie, you know, and it's so much more fun. Yeah. Um, so my hope, yeah. The hope I guess is that like people get uh, people hear through the grapevine that it's worth, you know, even if they're at home watching it, like sticking with it. So, yeah, it absolutely is. It is something that I haven't really seen recently it's, you know, like, it's a good, you know, teen 
comedy thriller farce like a, it's like a wet hot american summer meets yeah uh twin peaks that's actually really <laughs> fun cool yeah so it, it's good um people thank should see you it i mean when when they can see it <laughs> but they we will should they will thanks see it um yeah so this is based somewhat on your own as you said personal experience like what um what was that like um i i assume bread and theater uh like there there was some element of like you're in this theater commune and you have to like contribute to the um you know communal um health of the community by doing like farm work or something or Yeah, but I'm so uh lazy. I didn't do much farm work, but so was everyone else. And so, um, yeah, uh, you had to, let me see, I'm getting myself more water. Um, I mean, part of, uh, sorry, sorry to cut you off, but part of, um, you know, the uh, Eco Village, the, the play, the, the film was uh, she's a fish out of water and like she meets Jake and she meets these kind of like, okay, yes, the woman who wants, who runs the place, Ursula, is uh, very much of her, probably of her own social class, more or less. She's a, a Wall Street dominatrix. I don't think that gives anything away. But... Um, Yeah, like Jake seems to be more maybe working class, hard to say. And, you know, some of the other people there seem to be out of her social class. And um, so... Yeah, it was very weird. I was definitely a fish out of water. I'd like never been camping before. And then I was like we living in a tent and that was cool. And that's what I wanted and why I went there. Um, but I definitely felt it's funny. I'm very different now today. And I think people would be surprised by how much I've kind of shifted in terms of like, I'm much more comfortable in like sort of like hippie countercultures. Or I think weirdly, like people perceive me as like that type of person, like kind of crunchy Yeah, granola, yeah. whereas that was like, not necessarily how I was, especially within that, like, con like I, I sent, I seemed very like nervous and weird. Um, something happened like the first week that I was there, which was that it was, you know, it's, it's like up there doing like political theater. You were in these like political theater kind of things. And so there was like a Gaza war that broke out. And, and so then Peter Schumann, who is like kind of the creative director of the whole thing, he's like very anti-Israel. And so he, the puppet show that we were all supposed to be in was like, Israel was this big garbage bag monster. And then the Palestinians were like these little naked, like kind of people puppets. And I was like, not doing, I was like, you know, I was like, I'm going to just clean dishes and like participate in the commune life in other ways this week, but I'm not going to be in the show. And I Yeah. thought that was chill and it wasn't at all. People really uh, kind of swarmed Yeah, yeah. me and I felt very uh, like, uh, cast out like just immediately upon arrival like this was really early and I was like oh damn like okay I've, I've really marked myself as sort of not somebody that can like uh fit in here and um that was weird and then um yeah just like I it was just it was I think what it was was you know you couldn't use your cell phone like there was one phone and it was like a landline and it was like in the middle of the living room and so privacy becomes so important in an environment where it's so scarce and so everybody was kind of so aloof and there was this weird like unspoken it's funny I'm just having a flashback to this girl No, being no, like go ahead. Yeah. this girl she's like she, I remember this girl saying like this place is not a safe queer space and I just like and it wasn't like straight up like it was like basically like it wasn't a straight it wasn't a safe anything space like it was basically like everyone was fucking everybody but it was all kind of a secret and like every morning when you showed up at breakfast somebody would be like crying but you wouldn't know why and it was like no one it was just like It was a very weird culture. And so this is the other thing is like you had to 
So you had, I got in off the wait list, which is funny. You had to apply in to be an apprentice, quote unquote. And an apprentice meant that you were paying to be there, which was funny because it was like a lot of like, you know, art school dropout hipster kids who are like on food stamps and they're like paying to be here. And then the other tier of the people were the, the full-time staff and literally your wage, what you were paying as an apprentice was literally directly paying their wages. And so yeah. on the one hand, it was people who are all the same age, largely the same levels of experience as professional artists, but like half of the peoples are paying to be there. And that money is going to the other half of the people, but they all have the same amount of rights and responsibility, which is none. Um, and Peter Schumann has no successor. And so he's kind of a genius guy. Like I have a lot of respect for what he built. Like, frankly, he just did the work and is a genius and a really industrious man. But he very intentionally there was it was him and no one else. And so he would start like these puppet shows, but he would sit on the top of a school bus that was like these cool painted school buses where people lived. And then he would put on these like stilts and then he learned how to play a trumpet, two trumpets at once, like out of both sides of his mouth. Oh, and wow. so that was That's pretty hard. These, it's hard. And so these puppet shows would start with this like very charismatic old dude who was like boop, boop, like playing both trumpets at the same time. And then everybody else was behind these puppets and so you he was like the face of the whole thing and then the rest of us were like holding these shitty old puppets which are from the 70s and so he has this three-story barn where all of these old puppets are living and they're all filled with like rusty nails and mouse poop and smell really bad and the first thing they sell you when you show up is and remember these are people that are like art students like you had to apply to get into this place they say if you make anything you either have to take it home with you or burn it so <laughs> as an artist is not going to be featured in these shows at all and so it was just this weird thing where it's like, what do you do when you get a bunch of like, basically like kind of drifter, like <laughs> miscreant artists who don't have work to do, but they're just sitting, they're all going to fuck each other and make trouble. You know what I mean? So it was like, basically, yeah, that was what happened. And so, um, yeah, it was paradise in some weird ways. And then it was also just like the Lord of the Flies and others. Like it was just so passive aggressive and weird. Like I remember at lunch, there used to be like announcements because people were losing their shit all the time. And so you would have like, you would make an announcement and just be like, um, Hey, um, I left my backpack by the thing, if any, by the lake, if anyone saw it. And if you were popular and high status, people would like listen and like <clears throat> when you made your announcement. And then if you were not popular or low status, people just talk over your announcement. And I was just like, <laughs> I'm like, guys, why don't we all just shut up and listen to each other's announcements? Like, why does it have to be like this like harrowing thing? And it, it just had to be because there was no other ways to demarcate status because no one was making money really. Or like, yeah. you know, it was all Peter Schumann's. And so popularity was all that mattered. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you don't have, and I think I said this on another pod, when you don't have titles, when you don't have like, and so I was describing the dissident, right? As one of the reasons why we're all at each other's throats so yeah. much is uh there's no demarcations of who controls what mm -hmm. so like when you don't have like like in the mainstream media you have like this person is the executive producer of this or the executive editor or whatever and like in you know this kind of uh culture that we've created on our side of the internet um yeah there's no it's kind of like everyone is you know equal which means everyone is you know doesn't know where they stand so they're yeah. all kind of jockeying with each other and it sounds very similar to what you're describing there so yeah your um experience at uh 
uh, Bread and Puppet uh, Theater Company. It, um, I mean, I imagine the milieu that you were in there was primarily, um, I mean, theater people, obviously. Uh, it was definitely like a leftist thing. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I spent a summer in Yellowstone National Park working. Um, so I, I had applied for it just as 19 and I just literally Googled cool summer jobs and uh, found this like this, uh, you know, kind of like mega corporation that governs or controls the um, the hospitality at national parks. So I applied to be a, um, a housekeeper at Yellowstone National Park so I could hang out in the park for the summer. And the interesting thing is like I got there and like it's a similar for me, it was a similar kind of like um fish out of water because like I was 19, very much a straight arrow, you know, good high school student was, you know, attending a very good college. And this was just kind of like, I'll do something fun this summer while my friends are interning at magazines or at banks or whatever, I'll be at Yellowstone National Park. And so I assumed that my like fellow um, workers would be kind of like, not exactly like me, but like kind of like, um boy scout types like captain america types like very much like oh i like to go in the park and there there were some of those there there were but uh apparently like a lot of people work in i didn't realize this at the time a lot of people work in national parks for the summer because you're very far away from drugs to dry out so there are a lot of recovering addicts and so that uh, introduced me to a whole subculture <laughs> group of people that a kind of like, uh, you know, a not uh, not too world weary 19 uh, year old me was like, oh, hey, so you uh, you cook meth. That's uh, that's a cool thing. <laughs> wow. And uh, yeah, so it was um, I mean, it's it's very much like I feel like there are like these kind of like summer rural adventures or, or what have you where you're placed in kind of like you know it draws people from all over and then suddenly I, I assume at bread and theater as well you're far away from society like in Yellowstone like literally hundreds of miles in every direction there's just park so it's just like just you just you and these people and so you like you have to form relationships with these people you, there's no one else you like anything you that, I'm, I'm curious when you're saying that you and these people like because for me like no it sounds very similar as experiences I'm curious in your experience like what role there was like you and these people and then this like giant park and I'm curious as to like what as a 19 year old or whatever you kind of picked up from the nature like how did the natural landscape inform the interpersonal behavior or did it or it feels like the characters maybe were more kind of predominant um in your experience like I'm curious as to how, like what you learned about nature in that like summer so or what your like, previous exposure had been my previous exposure I grew up in New York City had been very little I uh not uh, not a nature person so th this was yeah very much new to me and so the way it shaped the social dynamics was also it was interesting because like on days off people would get together and we'd go out into the park so like it made sense it was actually a very social environment because you don't want to go out in the park alone both for safety reasons you like literally like you, you turn like a, we turn trail corners and there's like a buffalo 10 feet away the buffalo can kill you bears can kill you so like you want to be with other people 
So, but beyond that, like, it's just like, you want to be with other people generally, you want to experience the park with other people. So yeah, it was like a really communal environment. Like you like, you know, if, and also like someone's working one schedule, someone's working another. So like, you know, you, you might go on an all day hike with people you don't even know or like very much, but it's just like, Hey, I want to hike. I want to see the park we're, we're going to do it. And um, yeah, so it, it was good. It kind of like really mixed people up and I met people who I, I wouldn't have met. And one thing that I will always take away is having been a, or you know, having grown up in New York city, I still we're we're still in New York city. This whole scene or everyone is in New York city. Life sentence. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, the sky, the sky in Yellowstone was like nothing I had ever seen before or mm-hmm. since, frankly, just like totally, like there's something, you know, it's one thing to be like in the woods in like, I don't know, um, Long Island <laughs> or in the woods yeah. in like, you know, uh, Pennsylvania. It's another to be like in the woods in Montana or Wyoming, where like literally for hundreds or even thousands of miles, there's no like real lights. I mean, there's like, there's Bozeman, Montana, there's a few others, Jackson Hole, but you know, there's not that much. So like, like the night sky was just like, you know, in New York City, you can see a couple of stars. In Yellowstone National Park at night, you see all of them. And that that was incredible. I still remember that. Yeah, no, just getting back to um, ancient apocalypse, the sky and like, which obviously played such a huge role in like the ancients understanding of the world and is such yeah. a focus and obsession. Whereas like, that's not what we talk about in New York City. <laughs> no, no, we rarely see anything when we look yeah. up there, which is sad. It's... um. You know, and you, you suddenly realize when you're, you know, in a place like Yellowstone or wherever, like how much there is to see. And yeah. And that like maybe like kind of takes us to um, there's so much to see that we are not seeing. And that is uh, this kind of like current culture. You mentioned ancient ancient apocalypse. And uh, that's a documentary series on Netflix where Graham Hancock, who is a journalist, an investigative journalist, is exploring archaeological mysteries, postulating that there is a uh, a potentially uh, lost civilization before what we consider to be uh, not even history, but prehistory, that there's a prehistoric lost uh, essentially Atlantis or an Atlantis like civilization that was that was lost. And there's like good reason to believe this. Like if you watch the documentary series, there's like interesting stuff that the, you know, mainstream archaeological community has uh, prevented from, you know, getting out there. And this is something that we've talked about. It's in our notes. Um, This is something that, you know, you are very familiar with, with uh, the Edward Devere question. There are in across, it feels like we're at a unique moment uh, because of the, the the woke stuff or whatever and the various kind of like central centralizing power, the the regime, or if you, you want to use, you know, the Yarvin version, the cathedral or, or whatever, there is a kind of like consensus that has kind of emerged 
where like in any given industry, you need to trust the science, you need to trust the, your, you know, trust the people in charge because they know what's right. And what has happened is, uh, so for like archaeology, these really interesting theories are being ignored. In literature, these really interesting theories about Edward de Vere and Shakespeare authorship are being ignored or suppressed. And I mean, that's true more broadly. And so like I, I tie this to my own personal experience, like writing. I, I recently, as my viewer, readers, listeners are for sure aware, I, I wrote a novel called Nutcracker published by Terror House Press. Thank you. And it, uh, and so like, this is a novel. I did submit it around to uh, different agents, no bites, Probably not surprisingly, if I were an agent, I wouldn't bite either. But I mean, that's more because of the climate in publishing today is such that you really can only publish things that are like on message politically. And so what this has led to, in my opinion, is all of these different disciplines have been captured by this consensus thinking, and it's created an opportunity for outsiders to uh, kind of like t pick up where they left off and do the good work that they had been doing, but can no longer do. So Graham Hancock doing archeology span or investigative journalism on archeology, span you doing investigative scholarly work on Edward de Vere and- Robert uh, Prechter, Alexander Waugh, Roger Strip Matter, uh, Hank Moore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, okay, yeah. Um, and, you know, people like Matt Forney at Terror House publishing works like, uh, you know, Dragon Day by Matt Pegas, my co-host, Nutcranker by me, and, uh, you know, very many other works like um, the, the Static Age, which is upcoming from Bad Billy Pratt, which features an essay by none other than Joe, who read at the reading, we're uh, talking about Junker Joe on Twitter. And um, yeah, so... And expat, where you had your story published, it um, there are kind of like alternatives to the mainstream in literature in all of these areas that are emerging, and um, I, I think we're uh, we're at a very interesting cultural moment in that sense with a lot of opportunities. What do you think? Absolutely, PDB? absolutely. I um I just want to fly. I think I have to wrap up in a couple minutes because I oh, sure, yeah. wanted it at a holiday party, but um, but no, I think you're right. I think that like. It's very weird. I think we're at a weird like generational cleft because I think that people, you know, we're in this moment where it really does feel like everything's broken and nothing works. And so our relationship for me, like just, you know, to, to outsiders for like, you know, these things like Harvard or let's say the public theater or like Broadway or, you know, I also, by the way, had an experience of um, I have a graphic novel that I've been sitting on for like several years and I shopped it around to like every young adult publisher in New York, like straight up. And I have, and it was, it's, I think I really stand by it. I think it's really solid work and it got very, like, it was very well received by like dozens and dozens of people that I sent it to and they often wanted to read more. And then they said, well, they said a bunch of things. First of all, the main characters are actually like is African-American and so I think that was like basically the sense that I got was that it's a total non-starter. No one would touch it. Um, young adult fiction is actually like kind of the wokest 
industry you're going to find, like, you know, it's like you read all these weird stories about like the Chinese woman who got her like book really her book deal canceled because people weirdly misinterpreted as saying something that it wasn't even saying. And like young adult is crazy. And so it's a young, it's a graphic novel, kind of like an adventure story for young adults. And, um, like, I'm not even sure when or if, I mean, if, yeah, I'll eventually we'll figure it out. But, um, I really was, um, I was just like, yeah, it's not the moment. Like right now, like it's like the fact that I, as like a person who's not a person of color wrote a, you know, a thing and, you know, even like, yeah. So that was just total non-starter and it was just radioactive and no one would touch it, even though I think that the work was high quality, um, and even if it wasn't high quality, whatever. But um, yeah, it's just funny having seeing the generational divide in terms of like I've like the best. This is something I talked to about like the Oxfordians who are generally older, and for them, they really are bummed out that they're not at Harvard or whatever. You know that really upsets them. And I'm like, guys, I have good news for you. I mean, there's good news and bad news, which is like the West is falling and all of our institutions are like uh, irreparably damaged and will not survive. But on the bright side, that's good for Oxfordianism. And like basically the smartest people that I know who are young and cool, don't give a shit, had a horror. Like for me, it's funny. It's like, I think, you know, I, you know, there's the, the Simon and Garfunkel song. It's like, when I think back on all the crap I learned in high school, it's a wonder I can think at all. I feel like boomers get that like high school was fake and like your hometown, everybody was small minded and stupid and it was fake, but then you went to college and then you learned real shit. Whereas I feel like people in our generation, there's a shift or maybe even more zoomers who God bless them have had to deal with this like pandemic thing at the beginning of their like college careers or whatever, if they're going like, I feel like, now I think if I meet somebody and they're like college was such an amazing experience I learned so much in college I'm like red flag red flag red flag red you know what I mean like yeah I feel like now college to me is like even more of like a weird normie like re- like a college enjoyer is like even worse than a high school enjoyer or if anything maybe the high school enjoyer yeah. is like, like well adjusted and cool and doesn't have like a I was not a high school enjoyer I was maybe a college enjoyer but well, I, mean, I basically like, I, say, I say this to I say this to the Oxfordian scholars. I'm like, you guys, no one cares. Like young people, and that was me at first when I started to make my first like TikTok video that I made. I was wearing like a collared shirt because I thought it would be a you know a a subliminal appeal to authority and make me seem more yeah. serious. Guess guess how much people on TikTok care about whether or not you seem like you have like a educational background. Not a fig, my friend. You know, it's like people really don't care at all about the credentialism. And I think it's dangerous. And I think as we've sort of alluded to, there is something that's very perilous about having a society where it's like all the credentials are like defunct and it seems like chaotic and a free for all. But it does seem like right now the most robust, truest ideas will have an opportunity to find audiences that they've maybe been denied for decades, if not centuries. And so that's a good news, (laughs) limited silver lining for Oxfordians. Absolutely. I mean, I think college enjoyers today, that's like being a propaganda enjoyer. And it's just Nazi. Yeah, it's a propaganda enjoyer. Yeah. It's like, it's it's stupid. Like who, no one really is like, oh, I'm a propaganda enjoyer. No one would really want to claim that. So you essentially, you are saying that you don't believe obvious propaganda is propaganda. And so it's like, I think, yeah, very or much I so. Think maybe there's a there's a moral sanctimony, which is like I know that it's obviously prop, it's obviously propaganda, and I kind of know that it's not true, but I'm willing to accept the bullshit 
because I know that I'm on the right side of history and I have this like moral standing that makes me okay that I'm telling lies. Yeah, which is pretty, you know, definitely worse. So, yeah. Uh, uh, it's, uh, I mean, no, like, I, I think, think there's it's... one thing to be a, like a dumb person that doesn't have the ability to discern truth from bullshit and to be like swindled and to like be like, I'm just confused. I'm just disoriented. You know, I'm going to do this and that because I've been told it and I'm dumb and I've been like led like a herd animal. But I think that you're right that there is something sinister and evil about somebody who's smart. But they think that they're going to they're just they're, they know it's propaganda, but they're going to be on the team of the people that are generating the propaganda because they think it's the right team. And maybe yeah. I don't know. Maybe they're right. Maybe it's good to give propaganda. Maybe it's all great. From the very beginning, like I remember even before I started New Right, I was talking. Um, God, I think I was actually talking with Justin Murphy. And I described how um, I think like essentially anyone who disagrees with the mainstream consensus is on the right. Because, like, if you disagree, you're automatically a, a, a disbeliever, a, a dissident, or what have you. And so, I'm not to get into political distinctions. I'm sure there are like many between you and me, and many between people on my side or whatever. But um, I think, in general, what has happened is the uh, the cultural right has, you know, claimed um, the arts really because mm -hmm. like the the actual like the institutions the kind of progressive and you know establishment left institutions are not you know in, they're funded they're incapable of producing good art and Tell so oh my god yeah. so like oh my god. on the yeah. right you know where like you know i mean like there's certainly some gatekeeping certainly some people on the right are like oh you can't write stories like this it's not it's degenerate it's this or that but I think in general, it's just kind of like there's room for artists to breathe. We are, you know, both and, and many of the people we've we've spoken to and know are pursuing these kind of outsider paths that are, you know, bringing the truth to light. And the truth is not, you know, necessarily political. The truth is something that just is. And so, yeah, I mean, I think we are on the right track and like the the best art is happening outside of the mainstream it's happening in eco village it's happening in it's happening uh, in the nutcracker by it's happening yes it's happening in nutcracker which uh, everyone should read and buy multiple copies of and uh it's uh it's happening in bushwick uh townhouses where matt forney holds readings yep. <laughs> which uh was you know very fun i'm sure he'll do it again and uh yeah and it's most certainly happening on january 28th the second devere ball everyone should come i mean frankly the last one sold out so you better get your ticket soon or you're not going to be able to meet the um you're not going to be able to meet phoebe but you're also not going to be able to meet whoever this mystery these mystery guests are yeah. and like it it was curtis yarvin last time so who knows it uh, it could be anyone yeah. It, um, yeah, it's stay tuned. Could be anyone living or dead. Um, hint, hint. Yeah. Could be, uh, Edward DeVere. Yeah. Uh, could be, could, could be, we could have zooming in Edward DeVere. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this is really a pleasure. Um, I've been looking forward to it for a while and it didn't, uh, didn't miss. Cool.